Politic 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of evil. Now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck. This is the Discovery edition of our broadcast where we discuss and break down, analyze, and get into the nitty gritty of the latest Star Trek series titled Star Trek Discovery. But I would think that would be very obvious, right, Dave? Absolutely. It is the most logical thing to assume. Yeah. Now, today, of course, I am Michael Flores, your host. If you are a new listener, I know every week we're bringing in hundreds of new Subscribers, which I just want to thank people. It seems like pretty soon we'll have more listeners listening to this show than there are subscribers to CBS All Access. <laughs> that is, unfortunately, that is true. Which means there's a lot of piracy going on. So uh, simmer down. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Star Trek fans are pirates as well. That's Apparently, all right. there's more hairy muds out there yeah. than anything else. <laughs> you guys are rogues, 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 and scoundrels. So, anyways, we got a lot to get through. This episode is definitely one of those episodes that has a lot to pick apart. And I don't mean in a negative way. I just mean in a in a writing kind of way. There's just so many layers to this series. And that's why I'm really, really appreciating this show. And I'm hoping that the Star Trek fans out there who are not quite on board yet will kind of put away their preconceptions and recognize that this is something very different, but at its core, it's still Star Trek. And I think that is what we need to start gravitating to so we can be one unified, positive, geeky fandom. Right, David? Oh, that that's something that we'd, you'd wish. But unfortunately, things don't quite go well with the Federation. So I don't expect things to go quite smoothly with Star Trek fans nowadays. Yeah, so I am hoping that eventually will all come to come to get along and appreciate this series. The controversy surrounding Star Trek Discovery is starting to be, or I should say, starting to feel very similar to what we had in the days of Deep Space Nine. It is. It is. It's very reminiscent of that time. Yes. It, it reminds me of the, it was the pushback of so many Star Trek fans because for so many years, people were used to, Star Trek, the original series, of course. They were used to the five-year mission. Yes, and the next generation, and what that story is about. And Deep Space Nine was something very different. It had its own set of stories and themes that, in its own right, was also Star Trek, but also very different. And I feel like the um, Discovery is kind of falling, following the footsteps of DS9. It's daring to be different it's trying to take Star Trek out of its little confined box and tell a, a different type of story. But at the same time, staying true to what makes Star Trek Star Trek. And that's a very slippery slope, and it is, it's way easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. The thing is, it's kind of like everyone has, put, uh, everyone has rallied 
I guess, against or for deep uh, for Discovery so far. Oh yeah, you can say Deep Space Nine too, and Deep Space Nine, <laughs> but mostly because like when you take a look at it, the tone is set differently. Yeah, it's very different. It's very different, and compared to like even like if you take all the series all together, the ones that feel similar to each other is like the original series, Next Generation, Voyager, right, and then the others basically kind of go on to themselves or actually are clumped together like deep space nine enterprise and now discovery. Yeah, it is different, but you know what? I'm, I'm on board. I'm on board the discovery train. Right Wait, now, the, yeah. maybe not the discovery train, the discovery ship. That's probably a better way of saying it. I'm definitely on the shuttle and I'm on my way to discovery. I'm not quite, I'll be honest. I have, I have, I don't have issues. But I have worries. Is that is that fair? Is that fair? Yeah, you have you have hesitations, and not with what I've seen so far. However, they're they're they do need to. We're five episodes in, so I, I'm I'm very I'm being patient. They're they're they do need to explain certain things, and I'll give some of the uh, more vocal Star Trek fans that for sure. I'll say there are things that need to be explained, and. They're very obvious. These Aaron Herberts and Gretchen Berg aren't morons. They understand there are some issues in terms of canon, and they've already they've already voiced it in yeah. interviews. Like, look it, give us some time, guys. We're gonna we're gonna get there. Just be patient, and I am willing to be patient and and watch this story unfold. Because when it comes to writing, forgetting all the Star Trek ins and outs for now, just looking at writing. The writing aspect, this show is damn good. The writing staff is a powerful group of talent that knows how to tell a story in terms of meshing themes and character development and also giving us what we need as an audience at the right time. And that's something that we saw a lot in this particular episode, season one, episode five of Star Trek Discovery titled Choose Your Pain. I love the choice of titles. I love their titles. Their titles are actually very appropriate for each episode. It's very telling of what we're going to see and not in a on the nose fashion. Yes, there is a on the nose element, obviously, but there's much more thought. And we're going to get into that because that title specifically is connected heavily to Lorca and what makes him tick. Now, this week's episode is directed by Lee Rose and written by Kent Powers. Story by Aaron Herberts. Harberts. Eventually, Aaron, I'm going to get your name right. I apologize. Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg. The synopsis is, while on a mission, Lorca unexpectedly finds himself in the company of a prisoner of war of a prisoner of war Starfleet Lieutenant Ash Tyler and notorious intergalactic criminal. Harry Mudd. Remember, he's not a criminal. He's an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So in this week's episode, the writers chose to sideline Burnham just a bit so that we can focus a bit more on the side players. And I felt like it worked great. Uh, The focus was on Saru and Lorca and the intricacies of their character, which helped developing their arcs, which I think most people can say was lacking. And again, not in a negative sense. It was lacking intentionally. By design, the writers chose to sideline those characters to build the bulk of the story around Burnham because she's the vehicle. She is the thread. Her and the poetic 
naming of the Discovery is the thread that's going to interweave our story throughout this series. Yeah, and also they understand that in order to make that story of Burnham's substantial and actually have something behind it, they have to strengthen the characters around her. They Absolutely. Just can't make, they just can't make them like paper machés no. around her. They have to give those characters at least a little bit of a do because they also understand in the past of Star Trek, that was one of the strengths of Star Trek. Yeah. You know, if you look at uh, the original series, it started with Kirk. That was Kirk's story. Right. They had to actually strengthen the other characters around him, and that's why we got very strong characters like uh, Spock and McCoy to back him up. And Star Trek's littered with examples of that. You, you, can, say, you can say the same thing about Voyager. Um, and obviously there's more than one reason as to why they introduced Jerry Ryan's character, Seven of Nine, for several reasons. They were trying to save the show. It was floundering. Uh, it didn't have, it felt like it was losing its direction. And by bringing in Jerry Ryan's character, much like they did on D Space Nine with Worf, they managed to find some footing and a direction for the show that really worked in the end. And what Jerry Ryan's character, Seven of Nine, did for Voyager. It was only made possible by the interactions and the issues that were created with the introduction of this Borg character. So you're right. You're spot on. Star Trek is about the ensemble cast. I'm okay with there being one focus, but you have to build up those characters. And so far, they're doing a great job. And like I said before, they're doing it at the right time. Uh, they didn't lift the veil completely for Lorca this week, which yes. is something I don't want them to do. So I think that's a good move. I feel like the mystery behind Lorca's true intentions is vital to keep right now. It's, it, you have to maintain that that mystery. Uh, it's far too soon to fully understand what he's really about. However, they did give us enough for us to be intrigued yet again when we find out that he blew up his his own his own ship his own ship and we're going to get into that cuz there's a lot of psychology we could talk about that and the the black and white versus the gray area and after our first break we're going to break down that and really get into that cuz there's a lot a lot there David oh there is i mean it was that whole all those scenes with Lorca and Mud and the prison scenes and stuff in this episode is really telling about Lorca's character like I, the last episode, I was like saying that Lorca is a very dark version of Captain Kirk. Yeah. He's separating himself now yep. away from that yeah. stereotype that a lot of fans were going in saying, oh, he's going to be kind of like this roguish Captain Kirk. Kirk would never do any of the stuff that Lorca apparently done yeah, did. I agree. But again, it needs to be done. We need to have you can draw correlations and 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 then you need to contrast. Once you draw once you correlate, you contrast, and that's what they're doing. Yeah. Uh similarly, Saru was also shifted from the writing device that we've been talking about that we have coined at this point, I think. I, I I'm pretty sure we keep going back to this, but it's the trifecta of brilliance. He's part of the the trilogy of characters that's been uh introduced to help build our lead which is Burnham. But this week they did something a bit different with him. They brought him front and center. Yes. Exploring not only his issues with Burnham, but also making him more grounded when it comes to the struggles of insecurity and the feelings of inadequacies, which is nothing new when we're discussing the second in command, the, the first officer. Yes. These are things we've seen, uh, particularly with Riker. We saw that quite a bit. Yeah. Time and time again, it, it's like, it's very interesting because after this episode, it really made me start thinking like when you think back to all the Star Treks, the second in command, 
he doesn't the only one that basically like you could say doesn't have any insecurities or anything was Spock. I was going to say Jacote. No, even Jacote. That, that tattoo you, on the face is sheer confidence. If you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that tattoo. Oh, my God. But like, even if you think about it, even with Voyager, Jacote usually deferred to Janeway because he would always say it's her ship. Yeah. Not his ship. Yep. It's her ship. And then like in Deep Space Nine, uh, I'm trying to think who would you would classify as Cisco's second in command. I mean, it was could, it was Major Kira. Come on, would you say it's Kira or Odo? Yes. Uh, no, come on. Odo, Odo was like front and center. Yeah, a lot like, of time. Yeah, that's a that's a topic for another show. Yeah, let's not get too distracted because I think you and I can talk. We can literally pull out any element in Star Trek and talk about it for about five hours. Five hours. <laughs> so we, we need to control ourselves yes. here. So as per usual, we are going to get into all of the ins and outs of the writing. But first, I want to continue to talk about some of the things that the writers uh, treated fans to this week. Some familiar faces and various familiar names. The face would be that, of course, of uh, Harry Mudd, which we mentioned at the top of the show, a.k.a. Harcourt Fenton Mudd, a man that was made notorious, notorious or maybe possibly infamous uh, by the original by his introduction, of course, in the original series, uh, some people were calling him a villain of sorts when they were promoting his appearance in Star Trek Discovery. But yet again, the villains of Star Trek are very dynamic. Yes. And I wouldn't call him a villain. I, he He's maybe a bad guy, maybe a bit of a rogue. Uh, but again, I think he's more of an obstacle or, or that um, that tangible protagonist that the writers use in episodes of Star Trek just so that the the superficial side I I don't want to cut people down here but the superficial <laughs> the superficial audience who doesn't really delve into the nitty-gritty of the episode it gives them something to kind of gravitate to cuz as we know in writing uh particularly in American literature and television we have been we have been groomed to expect two things David that's a protagonist and an antagonist and that antagonist has to be tangible for the most part for a lot of viewers. Even though the tangible antagonist or the non-tangible tangible antagonist in Star Trek usually isn't a person. Sometimes it's a, a series of events, questions, ethical uh, dilemmas. And I, I feel like Harry Mudd is the embodiment of that in a lot of yes. ways. So I think even though he was a bit schlocky a bit in uh, in the original series, there was a there was a purpose to his character. He's much more than just a a simple villain. Yeah. If you notice, like in even in the original series, even though a lot of his episodes were slightly more com uh, comedic than anything else, there was a sense of danger with his character because Kirk would always still be very cautious around him. He may have been like a con artist, but you always watched you always I thought the brilliancy in in the original series was Kirk never treated Mud like he was inferior. Yeah. Kirk whenever Mud showed up, Kirk would always go, "Oh crap, he's here. Why is he here?" And it it would it would be pretty much for that episode, Kirk would always want to try to figure out what's his game what's was he playing at yeah and it's there's there's this feeling that even though like what you said is mud is not the typical stereotypical villain 
he kind of represents that gray area when it comes to characters, almost similar to like um you. Right. Getting back to the to the the inter the reintroduction of Harry Mudd, despite the fact that there's obviously some preconception that comes along with that character. It wasn't just a fan service moment, and that's kind of the thing I want to focus on before our break here. That's something that I'm not a fan of fan service. It, there's the fanboy in me that wants it. <laughs> you know, that I want those fan service moments. I want them to mention Q. I want to, I want to see Captain Kirk. I want to see this. I want to see that. But the, the realist in me in terms of the, the, the person that understands writing knows that fan service can, can be very poor. Uh, particularly... It's a sign, particularly, that writers of a franchise of sorts, when they have to bring in fan service moments, it shows that they're not very confident with their writing. And that's kind of what I was concerned with, with, with Harry Mudd. And it, I felt like it was much more than cheers and applause. Like, hey, guys, Harry Mudd's here. Put your hands together and yeah. uh, let's uh, all celebrate that nostalgia. Nostalgia's great and fun, right? <laughs> it was more than that. He was used to pose a question of ethics, the ideology of mud was solid. And we're going to get into that. I want to, there's, that's going to be like a 25 minute topic. So yes. we're going to talk about that after our first break. He was brought in for a purpose. It wasn't just fan service. And that's yet again, something that discovery has done great. They did good with Sarek, which could have been which that could have gone disastrously wrong. And now with the mud, they're giving us these fan service moments, but they're fan service moments that matter. Yes. Um, also, the names on the computer screen. Now, these are true Easter eggs. I know we were kind of bitching and moaning about some articles that w that was uh, published after the first episode aired, and everything to them ap apparently was an Easter egg. Like, oh, this is an Easter egg. Oh, look at this is an Easter egg. I'm like, those aren't Easter eggs. <laughs> now, these I would consider little Easter eggs for people that are in the know, and maybe even people not in the know. They don't need to be Star Trek elitists like ourselves to uh, to to understand some of these names, particularly the top two names that came to mind immediately. Now, the names on the computer screen when Saru asked the computer for assistance in protocol. Uh, two names popped, four names popped up. Yes. Jonathan Archer, which, of <laughs> course, the main character in Enterprise. Yep. The Poda captain himself. Ooh, wait, it's an Enterprise Price ship. ship. <laughs> Ooh, the lolly. <laughs> my father, my father designed this ship. <laughs> he really did act like Donkey, huh, in Shrek? He did. I mean, that, that was the sad part. I'm like, going, Scott Bakula just went overboard. Yeah, he, he went dark after the second, uh, yeah, third the season. He got more serious. Um, and then, of course, Christopher Pike, who appeared in, of course, a 2009 movie. Yep. As well as the 2011, I believe, Into Darkness. And, of course, he was the uh, in the original series as well. Now, uh, maybe a name not as famous or maybe people may not know this cat these two captains as much as the others but also matt decker who is also in the original series in the episode titled doomsday machine now yes. i'm not going to take credit for this the name sounded familiar and then i googled and went to star trek wiki this was the only name out of the four that i did not know right away but once i read about it i was like oh yeah i remember that yeah he flew he flew into the he flew the sister. He was the captain of the sister ship of the Enterprise. Yes. The Constellation? Constellation, yep. And then Robert April, who was revealed to be the Enterprise's first captain in the animated series. Yep. 
So that also brings up questions. So not only do we get those awesome nuggets there, which I think is just awesome, but also it brings up the question. All right. Well, who is the captain of the Enterprise right now? Is it Pike? Or is it Robert April? And are we going to see this? Is it, are we ready, David? Are we? Is it too soon? Well, we know we know that. No, basically, no. Is it too soon? Is it too soon? See, no. Because, okay, okay. Is that a Star Trek fanboy saying that, or a uh, a well attuned writer? Because okay, that's a fanboy. Yeah, because <laughs> the fanboy in me wants to see the Enterprise. ASAP. I want to see the Enterprise, but the. The writer in me tells me, let's wait. Like, we have plenty of time. We have plenty of time. Space is very big. <laughs> the question then becomes, would you actually go crazy if, like, later in the season, say there's a gigantic space battle that's being planned for the Klingon War, if the Enterprise were to show up? They have to be careful for a lot of reasons, Dave. There's a lot of things that need to be explained away by the end of the series. As we talked about last week with the technology of the spore drive, obviously we know this isn't a mainstream technology in terms of uh, Star Trek. Otherwise, we would have seen it in the original series and moving forward. So we know it either is mothballed or goes horribly wrong. Obviously, we can see the dangers just by looking at this week's episode. There are dangers to this. Will it be deemed unethical? Will it be mothballed and banned? There's ways to explain it, but we have to be very careful because if we intermingle too much with the crews that we know, then we start creating more questions that aren't going to be as explainable, if and, that makes sense. And that is the writer saying that. Yes. That's the because writer. The fanboy tells me, bring it now. I want it now. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I want it now. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to a very quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to get into the ins and outs of this entire episode. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Double dumbass on you. Fire everything. <laughs> the Rain Man Show. The Rain Man. The 911 oh, operator, operator was like, was ordering large, a double That is exactly right. <laughs> uh, a 911 dispatcher in Florida is being disciplined for failing to answer the phone. Other people in the store tried calling and nobody Jesus. picked up. The dispatcher wow. still on her eight-minute call. Ah, Jesus! Wow. How much pizza was she ordering? Eight minutes! What? How? Okay, it doesn't take eight minutes to order pizza. Now, what the is every topping you have? Can you list them all for me? <laughs> she was officially given a letter of reprimand, and when asked if personal phone calls should be placed on... Uh, oh, my should God, be placed I'm on. about to be murdered. Someone's beating on my door. I hope they answer. Please answer the phone. Please answer the phone. <laughs> Do you have thin crust? Someone's <laughs> uh, outside my door. God. <laughs> I really want to avoid uh, onions. Cody, will you get the phone? Wait, hold up. I'm trying to get this order in, okay? The phone! Wait, I'm trying to get this freaking order, okay? Who are you calling? Now, hold up. Who are you now, calling? what do you think about the pan pizza? Is that pan crust really good? Is that Barrow's again? Yeah. <laughs> I heard you got this wing special. Excuse me, man. Can you just hold for a second? Yeah. Wait. You know, hey, what kind of wing? You shut up! Hey, bitch, shut up! It's the mute button on this. 
Hey, hey, Thomas, you want Alfredo? Ooh. You want Alfredo? Yeah. Okay. Alfredo. Uh, side of that. Mushrooms? No, no. No mushrooms? No. Okay. Hey, guys, sorry I'm late. What I missed? For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. Well, I'm not plotting to kill Barry Allen. I'm listening to Ryan Denton on Rain Man Digital's DC on CW. Okay. You're 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 new to the city. Okay, you've heard. <laughs> I'm, I'm painting a picture, and you're ruining it with it's this train train. Come on, I, I know we're getting there. Hold on, let me ask this question. All right, let's stop. Everybody, uh, stop for a second. Okay, now like, I'm not on this train. I am not on the Patty hate train because I understand why she shot Wells. If you read the internet, a lot of people dislike Patty. I, I think she's I think she's the most hated character in the Arrowverse besides Lor- poor Laurel. Uh, <laughs> Shiny, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Maybe, no. maybe we just let the train go. Yeah. Angelica, so if we ever have her on the show, you are not allowed to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. I was just like, please don't let that happen. Holy shit. All aboard. We're in a fucking train station right now. Everyone who hates Patty. I'm not on that train. Hope she quits. <laughs> just kidding. God, you're hate. All aboard. Jesus, Angelica. <laughs> Check out the new DC fan show, DC on CW, covering topics from The Arrow, The Flash, and the new upcoming television show, Legends of Tomorrow. Head over to RainmanDigitalMedia.com to get more details. What are you looking at, nerd? Huh? I thought I was looking at my mother's old douchebag, but that's in Ohio. <laughs> Geek out Saturday. Like the force is the force. Let it be ambiguous. Let's not weigh it down with any little, hey, I can control it with a rock. <laughs> I'm a Jedi now because I have a blue stone in my pocket. Running throughout them. But the last few that he's done have met with universal scorn. I mean, I don't want her anywhere near Arrow. Yeah, no, like she is. The Stephen Amell, the Grant Gustin. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. Iconic she- director by any means, but he did make his mark in the 60s and 70s with with movies like this. I know we're joking because that's what we do. The idea that it could be used against the Nephilim. That whole, right. there's this multiple times now they've said there's only five beings in all of creation that it can't kill. They're saying that for a reason. Catch up on your favorite Rain Man digital geek shows every Saturday. DC on CW, Back to Tank, Weird West Radio, The Crossroads, and more. Geek Out Saturday on Rain Man Channel 001. Listen for the Rain Man digital app or tune in. Just search RM Channel 001. Open Sesame! So, do you see, do you guys, I don't want to just be the talking head here, do you guys disagree or agree with the, the, the writer of Trekonomics? I like the replicators and holodecks. Uh, my generation, which is not that far off from y'all's, grew up with TNG, and I don't know, that's just became a staple of it, so... But do you th- but do you see how it can pose story problems in terms of character motivation? Like, th- put yourself in their shoes. If you had everything, you just said, uh, jokingly, that you would never leave if you had a replicator and a holodeck. Uh, exactly. I'd be like, uh, computer, the Paul and Deanna Troy, please. Oh my God. <laughs> God. And seven of nine. Star Trek from the holodeck exclusively on Rain Man Digital. Go to RainmanDigitalMedia.com or Patreon.com slash Rain Man Digital. End simulation. Okay, David, we are back. Welcome, everybody. Star Trek Discovery. 
from the holodeck discovery edition where we're going to be discussing and breaking down this week's episode if you like our broadcast or you're listening live right now on TuneIn or the RM Channel 001 on our RMD app or even iTunes Radio, however you found us, you can take the show on the go. Just make sure you search Rain Man Digital in your app stores, your iOS, as well as Google Play. Also, iTunes and Stitcher. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck. Right, Dave? Absolutely. Leave us reviews. Give us thumbs up. Talk to us. Also, Twitter from holodeck from the holodeck. Yeah, that's us on Twitter. And you know what? I want to I want more comments from from fans and stuff like that. Yeah, it'd be nice. I mean, we do get some, but uh a little negative sometimes. It's a about, little negative. It, it seems like the, the the dialogue is just negative. And it's like, <laughs> come on, let's talk about the story. Let's talk about the story, right, Dave? Why are you why are you guys worried about a single word? Yeah. <laughs> I I would like it though, if some point during an episode of Star Trek Discovery that they bring in the classic Klingon song. I mean, oh, dude, if they did that, I mean, come on, that would just make me jizz in my shorts immediately. <laughs> I'd be like, fire torpedoes, please, <laughs> fire torpedoes. Don't you think, Dave? Oh, absolutely, fire! <laughs> I want to, I want to see some callbacks. They've been doing a lot of callbacks to like the Federation side. Yeah. I want to see more on the Klingon side. Hold on, I'm still firing, David. <laughs> Come on, I'm, I'm battling the Klingons right now. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, oh, hold on. All right, I All think right. I think we got him. Uh, yeah, we got him. Yeah, we got him. <laughs> <laughs> we followed their exhaust, and then Sulu followed up with another shot, and we, we destroyed him. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be discussing. Season 1, Episode 5 of Star Trek Discovery, titled Choose Your Pain, directed by Lee Rose, written by Kent Powers, and a story by Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg. Once again, the synopsis is, while on a mission, Lorca unexpectedly finds himself in the company of a prisoner of war, Starfleet Lieutenant Ash Tyler, and notorious intergalactic criminal Harry Mudd. All right, so let's talk Rain Wilson as Harry Mudd. So Harbert and Berg, I feel, did a great job updating the character, and that's a task in itself. Yes. Okay. Finding that thin line between updating for modern audiences and changing completely it completely, and that's always a problem that a lot of producers who are rebooting or breathing new life into a franchise they come up against when you're trying to update either a show itself or even bringing back old characters, you got to find a way to make a character work for modern audiences without changing who or what that character is. And I felt as an avid Star Trek elitist that not only from a writing standpoint, but even as a fanboy, I felt like they did a great job with reintroducing this character to modern audiences. Would you agree? No, absolutely. I think I think Rain Wilson's portrayal of Harry Mudd was spot on. Um, I think the thing that I kept telling myself was like when I first saw Sarek in the series, I kept telling myself, this is a young Sarek. Right. The same thing with Harry Mudd. This is a very young Harry Mudd. It's not the con artist, the very wily con artist that we know in original series quite yet because he hasn't gone through the, some of the stuff that he's uh, right. I guess you could say that's forged him into right. the person that he is. Yeah. yeah. This is the beginnings of Harry Mudd. And that's what I really dug about 
Wilson's portrayal because Mud's Mud's per, uh, like personality at this point, he's basically out for himself. Yeah, and it was fun to see the writers play with some of the uh, the dialogue where he dropped just dozens. Almost everything he said about his background were just dozens of Easter eggs, Easter eggs. Set, setting us up for who we know he is in the original series. Yeah. I, I thought it was just, it was just, I, it was definitely a fan jizzing moment. It, it was very exciting to see them utilize that character in such a way. And damn it, I didn't know Rain Wilson was that good of an actor. I didn't. I I was like very skeptical about this this uh, character coming in. Yeah, this ca- the casting. Yeah, this casting. But dude. He pretty much hit it spot on. Yeah, he did. And Roger uh, Cormell's portrayal of Mud in the original Star Trek series, although it was fun, uh, it was silly. It was silly at times, and it was uh, and it was a bit campy. And it was by design. Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't a stumble or a mistake on the writers uh, on the writers by any means. It was just the t- the time. It was the sign of the times. It was the '60s. It was a very different time period. And what can work at that time in television may not work as well. And that's where I talked about, you know, when we first came back from break just a minute ago, that's why I brought that up in terms of updating a character the right way. And the writers did a fantastic job ultimately updating him to make it work for modern television tactics as well as audiences. Um, the writers also gave Rain Wilson a whole lot more to work with than Carmel ever had. I mean, political ideology. This works on various levels, Dave. First, I'm a sucker for political ideology as long as it's the right show for it. And Star Trek is the right show for it. Uh, we have been introduced to a Starfleet and Federation that is relatively perfect. That's kind of what we've always been shown in the earlier iterations of Star Trek, right? We saw the opening struggles of politics and interspecies racism during shows like Enterprise, which also was a good way to kind of show that, yes, we have evolved as humans, but that didn't mean everything else evolved as well. There's still outside situations. There's still other species, other cultures, other factions. Just in terms of how it can relate to us, Dave, just It's a great message as just because we may change doesn't mean other cultures have changed as well and are willing to get on board. That's that was what I really liked about Enterprise, particularly the the um, the moving into the second or the third and fourth season. And it's something that needs to be that needed to be explored in Star Trek. It it showed the very baby, I guess, the, the, the first steps of. Of what would eventually become United Federation of Planets and and Starfleet's first journeys into space. And this is where we continue that similar thought. The Enterprise and what we know of Star Trek with the introduction of the Enterprise back in the original series, we always got this idea that it was a socialist, a socialistic utopia. But there's always another perspective. And we get a very real look into the core politics. Now, this doesn't spell happiness for everyone else. Mankind has evolved, but that doesn't mean the rest of the universe has evolved with it. It doesn't make sense. And even though I, again, for the stories that we saw in in Star Trek Generation, Next Generation, the original series, Deep Space Nine, and, and so on, it has worked. 
But now it's time to look at something different. What's going on underneath? And I know Into Darkness tried to explore that a bit. Even Enterprise and I believe the second, oh, the third or fourth season, they also tried to explore it. And they did okay for the most part. But this is more subtle. This is a more subtle approach yes. to exploring uh, a topic about mankind's evolution and cultural uh, shock that would indeed happen. This is a real message here with notes of anti-colonialism. Mud's words, I sure as hell understand why the Klingons pushed back. Starfleet's arrogance. Have you bothered to look beneath you? And again, that's not saying that Starfleet's bad and evil and maniacal, but it's also showing you that just because you have evolved doesn't mean the rest of the universe is, is ready to become evolved with, with you. Exactly. And I'm anxious to see what, uh, what they do with him next because he was used as a very clever way to introduce more political questions, yeah, political that's... ideology. And that's something that they have not refrained from doing in Star Trek ever. But, and especially since we're talking about Discovery, they haven't held back either since the very first two episodes. And it's one of those things that basically I think one of the knocks I always give Star Trek fans is they don't, there's certain things they don't want to think about, delve in, or even answer whenever I, I try to talk to a Star Trek fan is, how do you explain that humanity became so enlightened to the point in next generation that no one is in conflict with each other? How do you explain that? Yeah. And for a long time, Star Trek fans said, well, it just happened. And, and and nowadays, you just can't say it just happened. Well, we know that by looking at everything they've done since the original series and Next Generation, that it didn't just happen. It, yeah. th there was a slow process to getting to where uh, we see everybody in Deep Space Nine and the TNG era. And um, and things aren't black and white. And ultimately, this is how fan service is done right. Once again, exactly. with Harry Mudd, you take the theme of Star Trek, you flip it on its head. You don't make it bad. You don't want to make you don't want to paint Starfleet as bad. That would be the no. wrong thing. But change the perspective. And that's what politics is about. How personal politics is subjective. And that's how a perspective or point of view is formed. So we're not painting Starfleet in a negative light. We're looking at another perspective, another perspective of Harry Mudd's. We're looking at another perspective and exploring how the Klingons view Starfleet and a lot of these go, these correlations go hand in hand with what a lot of people say, what we do in our country with our military yeah, and how we try to force democracy on so many people. And there's a pushback because everyone's different. The way we relate to law or the rule of the land and the way we, we form our opinions, it's all subjective and you can't just, Pick up, you know, all your military troops, go over overseas and expect everyone to come in line because they don't understand it. I think that was that was it's, my... and not only do they not understand it, David, they're scared of it. They're scared because they don't understand. And that is what they're doing with Star Trek Discovery. And that is the genius of this show. They're not painting Starfleet as except maybe Lorca as warmongers. They're showing that there's a perspective that politics and ideology is subjective yes. and that is 
And that is very much Star Trek. It is very much Star Trek. And I'm 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 really happy you brought up the fact that the question of what did he uh I can't remember the exact words that Mud used to Lorca, but one of my favorite parts in the episode was Mud telling Lorca, what did you expect when you went to their front yard or something exactly. like that? Exactly. And, and that goes back to things that Deep Space Nine touched on with the, exactly, o- with the yeah. occupation of Bajor and c- colonialism has been, a, uh, has, been a, has been a thing that Star Trek has explored time and time again. And here we are again exploring that exact same thing exactly it's and great i love it i absolutely love it and even if you want to reflect back into the if you want to go into the future a bit in terms of star trek timeline we can go back to the star trek first contact days uh, tng era and even at that time the federation isn't the end all of the galaxy i mean according to star trek first contact again i'm going by First contact only because they specifically mentioned how many planets are part of the Federation in that movie. And I believe it was uh, it was a little bit over 150 worlds. I believe so. 150 worlds is nothing. Yeah, compared to the universe. So, yes, the United Federation of Plants, for the most part, is evolved. They have a very socialistic, utopian society that works. But again, that's one culture amongst the universe. And that's an area that I've always wanted Star Trek to explore. The other side. The other side. The other side. And that is exactly what they're doing. And again, it's a slippery slope. You don't want to paint the Federation as ruthless savages who don't think of consequences. You don't want that to be the case either because then they would be changing the very core values of Starfleet. And so far, they have not done that. Yeah, and going back just to, uh, just to reiterate what we've been saying, I mean, Rain Wilson's portrayal of Harry Mudd's been absolutely awesome for this character's uh, character's uh, development. Mm-hmm. And I found the found the exact line that he said. He says, "What did you think would happen when you bumped into someone who didn't want you in their front yard?" Yeah, and I remember when Rain Wilson delivers that line. That gave me chills. Yeah. He he said it as Harry Mudd to the point that basically, you know, you do not see Harry as a villain. You see him as basically kind of like a realistic person. He's an, he's an average Joe. He's an yeah, that's the term, the average Joe, and he's the he's the guy that basically we all have inside of ourselves is that one person who basically thinks for himself and. When I got when I watched that scene, I'm like, going, you know what? Best part of this episode right now, while I love Lorca and I love Saru, and I I think Burnham's story is going fantastic. The one shining beacon in this episode was Rain Wilson. Yeah, as Harry he, Mudd. he did a lot for the show. He did a lot for this for episode. This um, now this also takes us to Lorca on the Klingon ship, Dave. Uh, this choice that they that the writers chose to go with this direction made it possible to explore Gabriel Lorca a bit more. Uh, Up to this point, he's been a mystery. Uh, We've scraped the surface since we were introduced to him in the third episode. But what this episode does for the audience was absolutely fascinating. Um, We've never quite seen a captain like this before. And that's (laughs) no, we have not. And that's a good thing. You, You have to get you have to go outside the box. 
uh, normacy and and seeing the same thing over and over is is a is a path to destruction and boredom and people will tune out. Uh, Lorca confesses that he blew up the ship he previously commanded so that he could save his crew from Klingon torture and a slow public death. Now, this brings up a question. Obviously, is this ethically wrong? Now, remember, Dave, what this episode is about. It's about perspective and subjective politics. Exactly. Okay. Sure. In a world of black and white, yes. What Lorca did was disgusting. (laughs) Okay. But this is everything but black and white. Exactly. War and being forced into situations that are beyond your control are not black and white. Lorca, to me, is the most enigmatic character so far. And the story kicks open a door of dangerous possibilities. Uh, Some might look at him as terrible. I look at him personally as a guy willing to sacrifice his own soul to save his crew from a twisted and morbid fate. Yeah. You know, people, um, they made that that line. uh, What was it? I I was either, I can't remember if it was Tyler or Mud. I think it was Mud. About going down the uh, insult of... To Captain Lorca that he didn't he chose not to go down with the ship yeah. like a captain. But he, the he way I look at it decency. Right. But the way I look at it is Captain Lorca did go down with his ship. His soul. Yeah. He killed. When he killed everybody else, he lost his soul. Like you don't think that's destroying him internally. This is that instance is what's fueling his character now in Discovery. The Lorca we have now in this series is probably not the Lorca or the person he was before he chose to blow up his own vessel. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring this up because like this was a big thing apparently afterwards for a lot of Star Trek friends who hate Lorca because like he goes against every single code that a, that a that for Star Trek fans a true captain would never do. But listen, there's a there's a certain amount of sacrifice there. Yeah. He, to me, it, the way his brain operates, to go down with a ship is an easy way out. Instead, he spared his crew the agonizing certain death of public torture. And he gave up, in essence, his own soul so he could save his crew. Yeah. And, and the thing that, I, bring, that I, I wish someone would actually bring up is the fact that... We are bringing it up, David. Well, well quit living on the backs of other Star Trek fans. True, true. We are our own voice, David. The, the I am thing, Captain Lorca, and you're Saru. <laughs> the one thing that needs to be brought is up. Is your gangly uh, moving? Your gangly eye? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. It's a little bit. But My, my gangly eye moves too, but mostly when a hot woman walks in. <laughs> oh. I, I'm just saying. It's a warning signal. Is it multiple gangly? <laughs> oh, that's just not right. But like the, the one thing that needs to be brought up yeah. is the fact that this mentality was not just for Lorca. We saw this with Picard at one point with the Borg. Yep. Remember, Picard was willing to sacrifice everybody to kill the Borg. Yep. That was his this whole... Isn't, this isn't new. This isn't new. This isn't new. So to, to, to say, it, oh, Lorca... It is a new perspective, but this yeah. isn't new. Like, And you're right. For those fans that are complaining about Lorca, I'm like, Picard... I mean, that that was the beautiful thing of First Contact. First you had a captain that went... To the brink. He went to the edge. He was able to turn back and not make that decision, that tragic decision of sacrificing his crew. 
um, Lorca embraced it. He went down that path, but he also found a way to save his crew in his own way. Way. Yeah. Because if if you think about it, in Lorca's, when, when it was brought up in Lorca's case, I was thinking to myself, okay, he wants to save his crew. Number one, Klingon torture is terrible. We've already witnessed this in uh, uh, Choose Your Pain. But on top of that, we know that they eat their captives. Right. And we saw that with what the what the Klingons talked about. about not, the, not the female captain this week. She has sex with her captives. Oh, that's true. I can get behind that. <laughs> but, but what happened to George Al's body? Oh. Yeah. So in Lorca's mind, do you really want your crew to be... right? No, I I listen. I'm I on like that. I'm on Lorca's side. Yeah, I I understand where he's coming from, and you know, the genius again of this episode it, it goes far beyond what people are viewing superficially. Near the end of the escape, um, newcomer Tyler tells Lorca what happened when his old ship was destroyed. Lorca responds, "We choose our own pain." Right? He says, "We choose our own pain." Mine helps me remember. And that's that beautiful tie-in to the title. It's not just the obvious of what the Klingons were doing, but it was the fact that he chose his pain, and that was to destroy his crew. And now he has to live with it, and it now fuels him. And that's what I love about this series is because just like what That's tragic. Said, that's tragic, tragic as hell, man. And it's, it, it goes from being superficial to giving something depth. Yep. And you're not shallow anymore. Yeah. This is real, honest to God punch-in-your-face storytelling, character and, development. Yeah, and people can say, well, this is all about war, this is all about yada, 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 and it, this isn't about war. Yeah. And I said this, I believe, on our, I, I want to say our discussion on the pilot, war is the tangible obstacle. It's what the writers are using to connect the dots, A to B to C to D. But that's not what the story is about. The story is not about war. It's the farthest thing from being about war. War it's is just human war is just the tangible aspect. Yeah. War Our, is just the background. Yeah. All right. Let's get into Saru. Um, he becomes more than just a narrative device that helps Burnham, which, of course, we didn't have an issue with that. Uh, it did definitely work for the last four episodes. Being part of that trifecta of brilliance, those three characters, Sarek, Saru, Philippa, Georgiou, all working together parallel to help Burnham's character become who she needs to be in this story. But Saru has come to the forefront and he's become his own individual with his own issues. Uh, it's the first officer struggle. We've seen this plague many first officers. It's uh, an intriguing writing choice uh, to use a deceased character in such a way. Again, talking about Philippa. Yes. Philippa is a captain that was obviously beloved. And rather than bringing a character in for two episodes, killing her and never going back to her, the writers continue to use her as a sounding board for various characters. She would appear to be something really great to them, to Saru and Burnham. And this drives not only Burnham, but also Saru. It's what makes him a very real character uh, through that beloved nature that Philippa has has created right for Saru it's created issues of confidence jealousy that he will not be able to learn from Philippa which then creates conflict with Burnham he feels like he'll never become the officer he wanted to be without her 
Yes. And Burnham robbed him of it. That's a very real human feeling. And it's something that you can tell he wasn't proud of. He, he doesn't like that he dismisses Burnham. He doesn't like that he kind of dislikes her. He almost doesn't even forgive himself for feeling these, these emotions that he doesn't want to have as a first officer. Yes. And, and the cool thing about it is, is like, it's because of his alien nature that basically he always kind of, it, I believe in one of the past episodes, he refers to it as emotions of human nature. And he's not used to feeling these hum, hu, uh, human like emotions because his, his, uh, his race is very, they, I believe he said like they were very, there were one of two ways, prey or predator. Right. That was it. And, but when he was introduced to Georgiou and being a first captain, he was introduced to actually thinking outside of that. Yeah. And it made him uncomfortable. Yep. And that's why I was like, honestly, the one thing I'm worried about, the only thing I'm worried about with the Saru character now is like, we've always, the one strength that he had with Burnham up to this point being the trifecta, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. was the fact that there was that conflict. Right. There's that conflict of personalities. It's not going to go anywhere or it's not going to go away. The thing I'm worried about is because they got over this conflict now. I don't think they did. I think he's admitting it because I had the same thought. Yeah. I was hoping they didn't resolve the issue between. I don't think he is. I don't think it's going to be resolved. I I feel like it was a peace offering between uh, Saru and Burnham. But that those problems are going to stay there just because they talked about it doesn't mean he's not going to still have these feelings and blame Burnham from robbing him of his, you know, what I guess for a lack of better phrase, his birthright, what he felt like he needed and deserved to become the captain he would want to be. Because it's one of those things that Star Trek's very infamous for is basically, okay, let's talk it out. Okay. It's all fixed now. Yeah. I I don't, I don't (laughs) think we're done. I don't think we're done with that. I don't think it's going to be as overt, but there's still going to be those issues. I don't think Saru's still going to trust Burnham. Uh, And if, and if it does go away, that would be kind of a poor writing decision. And so far they've made some pretty strong decisions. So I don't see it going away. Let's hope fingers crossed, right? Fingers crossed. Yeah. I like that. I like the issues. Although eventually the the crew will have to become one cohesive unit. Eventually by the end of this season or leading into the second season, they're going to have to come to terms with each other because um, in order to hold on to the Star Trek fans, they're going to have to make internal peace and harmony within that crew yeah. because I'm okay with it for now. I'm, I'm okay with the disgruntlement and the issues because we saw that in Voyager for the first two seasons with the Maquis yeah. being a part of the crew. We saw those issues um, and the distrust and uh, the problems that came with that. We also seen it with Deep Space Nine and the Bajoran Federation uh, co-unification on DS9 and how they had to work together even though their politics and religious ideology was very, very different. So not all crews were as harmonious as, say, the original series and Next Generation. And they have found they have found clever ways to make these issues work so that it doesn't completely destroy Gene Roddenberry's harmonious wants that he wanted for Star Trek. Yes. So it works for now. But eventually we are going to have to see a crew that works together. That's united. That's united. But for right now, it works because they've all been thrown into a situation that they weren't ready. These are scientists. These are explorers uh, working with someone that 
they don't really trust Captain Lorca. So this makes sense and it creates interesting issues that that otherwise wouldn't really work in this show. So so far, so good. Now, also, Saru's issues this week brought back the question of ethics yet again. Do we use the sentient life forms, the sentient life form, the tardigrade? He went against the core beliefs of Starfleet due to his issues of inadequacies. If they had not propped up for the last four episodes, his issues of insecurities and his dislike for Burnham and the way he dismisses her, it wouldn't have allowed his character to make that decision and for us to swallow it. Even though we got upset at him that he chose to use this sentient life form without knowing everything about him. It makes sense. His decision makes sense. He specifically said in ways that I usually don't like, I don't like use of exposition. However, when they set up that scene that was done well by bringing up the list of captains that were successful and he then tried to create protocols that would fall in line and connect with what they would do and connect it to him and his situation. I thought that was smart. And he specifically said, I can't get rid of my issue. Like they said, get rid of Burnham basically. And he said, I can't do that. It wasn't in his, he can't get rid of the situation that's creating the conflict, the conflict. So we already knew that the audience already knew he was going to make a decision that might not be in sync with Starfleet. They were setting us up and be, see the writers aren't just throwing out Star Trek ideology and ideology canon just for just for the sake of it yeah they're doing it and they're justifying why and how and they're laying down those breadcrumbs to prepare us for it so it wasn't just a a throw out the starfleet moment and everything we believe in it was the situation he was in and everything he's going through that made him make a decision that he ended up regretting um, the writers chose the right decision by the end of the episode when Stamets chose not to use the tardigrade again. And, and I like that moment, too, because that like, was pure on Starfleet. That was pure on Starfleet. I loved it. I, I felt like if they would have used him again, it would have irked me a bit. Yeah. And I like the fact that basically it still creates that that feeling like the crew, there's still some dissension in the ranks because it's kind of like the crew don't listen to each other. Doesn't or doesn't listen to each other because, like, you have Saru saying, "Use the creature." Yeah, what does Stamets do? Who Stamets is like? Arguably, you could say Stamets is basically lower, lower on the command command ranks than Saru. Right. Well, yeah, most and definitely. Stamets doesn't listen to Saru. Yeah, he basically goes, "No, I'm going to do this my way." Well, because it go it went against his uh, ethical code, ethical code, and yeah. the Starfleet code, and he knew that. And rather than experimenting on another human he did what a lot of scientists do in history and they experiment on themselves themselves. first and for him to do that i felt like it embodied what he represented what he represented for the show so far he is the the pushback he is what the fans want this shit what the i'm sorry the um the, the star trek discovery viewers or the star trek fans that are still on the fence about this show and the direction it's going he is them he represents what they want yeah and and the thing i like about it too is the fact that he's he's the one that basically makes those decisions that all the federation people want to make right but he still accepts 
the consequences. You yeah. know, doing that, doing what he did, nearly killed him. And like, I like that ending, the ending scene with his, uh, with his uh, lover. That... Hey, simmer down with the word lover. It sounds so like, uh, <laughs> sounds so uh, with his so sexy and romantic with, with his significant other. I gotta do a show here. Don't get me all worked <laughs> up, please. But when he, well, that that scene, he basically he was saying how beautiful it was being connected to the machine. Yeah, and how much, even though he was in so much pain, it was worth it. Yeah. Well, okay. So, what do you think happened to Stamets? It, it, I, I'm not. I'm actually completely at a loss. I'm not quite sure what they what happened to him. Um, but this is definitely an interesting element to kind of leave the audience. That was a great way to end the episode because you're kind of like, all right, what just happened to him? Yeah. Did he become some? Did he become the next traveler? Well, stupid. Is he going to be? Is he have the fate? Oh of, man! If you bring uh, that up. <laughs> The traveler the traveler actually not the next traveler maybe he'll be the first traveler who knows who knows oh my god dude what if they <laughs> holy shit holy shit you're right Wait a second what if he does become the traveler dude yeah because because from tng right yeah now i need to go back and watch that episode and find out exactly you know what that's gonna be my job for next week i'm gonna for this upcoming week i'm gonna go back rewatch the episode and really pay attention to all of that and what it's all about and I'm going to see what if Stamets does become that traveler. Well, think about it that we see in TNG. Look at the powers. Look at the powers that Stamets just delved into. The ability to travel, travel the, stars the stars instantaneously. Anywhere. Instantaneously. Yeah. With and how, obviously, it's got to open your eyes, right? If yeah. you're if you're connected and you become one with the very with the very organic nature of the universe, which we already know if you've studied the universe in any way in college, we already know that the universe is in fact connected organically. Yes. So, I mean, it would explain how the traveler got around the way he did back in TNG. Yeah, man. I am. I, I did not think about this yet. But what if I they didn't think do? about it until you brought it up? What if like, they do that? That what? would be really cool. And all I'm saying is I hope Stamets doesn't make the same decision that Will Wheaton makes. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. I think he's okay. He's all right. All right. So you, you mentioned the uh, gay lover scene, and you're, that sounds so like uh, gay lover. I, I Thank you, Dave, for putting that, that phrasing in my head. That, um, that's the funny part. It's kind of like, well, I could just say lover. Why? Yeah. The, and the beautiful part is kind of like the, <laughs> everyone's always saying the gay lover and making it a big thing. And I'm like going, it's a scene between two people, yeah. two significant others who care a lot about each other and are a couple. Yeah. <laughs> they have been playing around with the gay vibe for a couple episodes now. A couple episodes. And they finally committed and I'm to so actually. Did. Yeah, I'm okay with it too. And I think because there might be pushback, even though Star Trek has always been very progressive, I feel like if they had introduced this gay relationship, immediately in the first episode it would have just added fuel to the fire of of some of the angry star trek fans who are upset about some of the things they're putting in the show and i feel like them holding back not only does it serve not only does it serve for a better story but it also prevents people from just having more things to complain about but also it feels it doesn't feel contrived it doesn't feel like they're putting Absolutely. in they're not putting an emphasis on hey guys it's a gay couple put your hands together and and appreciate that we're so progressive it's hey these guys are two characters on the ship and guess what 
they happen to be in a relationship together. And that's how you do gay relationships because there's nothing extra nor extraordinary about, about it. it. Yeah. They just put it in casually and didn't draw attention to it. And, and, and that's how you do it. That's how you do it because it's kind of like I I felt that that scene fit so perfectly for the ending because like it's kind of like yeah, who's taking care of Stamets at this time? Yeah. It would make sense yeah. that basically is his significant other. Yeah, would. he's taking care of him. Playing <laughs> playing doctor. <laughs> Real doctor. Let me fix your nose and then your penis. I'm going to do some probing. <laughs> oh, come on. This tricorder reading is very is very intense right now. It's very deep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So they it's time, Dave. We need to get into the most controversial aspect. Uh, okay. And then we need to wrap the show. We right. only have a couple more minutes. Well, I'm gonna, you, said, I, you said before the show, this is what we would say yeah, for the and, end. And I don't want to be, the reason why I don't bring these things up right away is because I want to have a positive show where we can really enjoy and appreciate what we're getting. Because that's what Star Trek is. Star Trek should be about positivity and not negativity. Right. Now, the most controversial aspect this week was the fact that... Tilly dropped the F-bomb. And it sounds so childish. <laughs> oh, oh, potty mouth. You said the F-word. How dare you? <laughs> I, I hate Star Trek. How and, dare you do this to us? And the best part by far, would it happen? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. And? <laughs> they, and, I, and I immediately, when I saw the hashtags pop up for Star Trek Discovery, people were bitching about it, saying that they're destroying Star Trek, yada, yada, yada. And I immediately went to our own site and posted an article. And I'm going to read exactly what I wrote, okay? Okay. Now, the headline is, they just dropped the F-bomb on Star Trek Discovery, and it was perfect. I wanted to be different, because everybody else was upset about it. Now, it would seem like this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery, Choose Choose Your Pain, was the first to do something episode. Not only were we officially introduced to the first gay couple in Star Trek, our ears were introduced to the very first F-bomb in an episode of Trek. The latter has seemed to piss off some so-called Trek fans, some of which are not even watching and yet would appear to have a lot to say about it. Strange, I know. Firstly, so many apparently have a very short memory. People were also very upset when Data said, oh shit, in Star Trek Generations. Though everyone has their own opinions on the matter, and they are most certainly entitled to it, I have my own, and I'm of the mindset that it's all about delivery. And Mary Wiseman, as Sylvia Tilly, embodies the Trek archetype of eccentric quirks. Well done. I felt like she had to be the one to do it. If they were going to do it, it had to be delivered in that way. It, it was in a moment where you get swept up in the, in the science and the cool factor of something. And she dropped the F-O. I felt it worked. It wasn't just, uh, you know, it wasn't just, oh, F it for no reason. It was there to create the obvious excitement of figuring out the science behind a solution to their problem. And it fits her character. She is that quirky aspect of Star Trek. She is that kind of out of the box persona of somebody who's not the norm. She's definitely very different. In fact, I said this in the very first episode. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the, the very first time she was introduced, I said she is the levity of Star Trek. You have a story that's that's very steeped in, in dark themes. And 
rather than continuing to take us down these dark themes, they bring us moments of of lighter themes, lighter notes. And that's why Tilly, I feel, is such a great balance to this show. And that's what she did. They brought levity and humor in the midst of chaos and dark political ideology. And I felt like it worked. It was a good call. Uh, each week, the show's pro- I continue to write, Dave, if you want to hear my diatribe here. <laughs> I said each week, this show proves itself more and more. It dares to be different, which is what Star Trek is all about. People hated on D Space Nine for years because they couldn't wrap their head around the glaring opposites. But at its core, it was still very much Trek. Discovery is the same. Dig deeper and you'll find the poetic nuances that Roddenberry had devised decades before. Discovery is the real deal. Now, David, because I want to get your thoughts as well on this. Yes. I, now, that being said, there was a moment of sheer shock <laughs> when I heard her drop the F-bomb. As a Star Trek fan, I was completely taken off guard. I'll be honest. I was like, whoa, whoa. And I looked at my wife and said, did they just say, <laughs> did they just drop the F-bomb on us? I wasn't offended. I was just surprised. And I, and I laughed and chuckled when it happened. Yeah. So it got the reaction that was intended. intended. Not only did it get the reaction from the audience while they're watching the show, but the internet came to life. And that's what Harbert's, as well as Captain Lorca, the actor that plays him, uh, Jason Isaac, said that he wants this show to become the talk of the internet. We are going to do things. If you remember, in our very first episode we did, Dave, he said, we're going to do things that's going to create discussion. Yes. And debate. And that's exactly what they're doing so far. Uh, your thoughts, Dave? My thoughts on, on it. It was it you hit it on the head in your article, and I encourage everyone out there to read that article. Get up in the mic. Yeah, it, Why are you the, fading away? I don't know. Are you I'm right up right there. <laughs> but I I really honestly feel that when it happened, yeah, a part of me was like, oh, they went that route. However, just like what you said, the delivery was the one that sold it to me. Yep. There was no other character that could possibly say this uh, say this bit of dialogue but Tilly. Yeah. And the fact that it's followed up by Stamets actually kind of emphasizes it. And it makes... Well, did you see his shock in his face? Yeah. <laughs> like, he was the audience. Like, he was the audience. It, it was so... It was so good. But it the, was so good. The thing I like about it is he retorted back, you're right. It is fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, lo- I thought it was good. I and, loved it. And that's how I feel that Star Trek fans should react. It was like, we just got a bit of in-depth look into the Star Trek universe and science. Yeah. Which is what we've all wanted because Star Trek fans live and breathe hardcore science. And Discovery has done very well with this by introducing brand new scientific elements that quite honestly, no one really talked about. And to have this moment come up, it is a, oh, damn moment it's a oh, oh fuck moment oh damn <laughs> and like the the thing that amazes me is like people are making an emphasis that one word one little word is going to destroy star trek yeah 
And it, I, it, I, that, I look at them and I go, you guys do realize this makes Tilly more realistic as a person. Well, ex- exactly, David. Now, by showing Stan- Stamets like shock, it does fix a few things, meaning people didn't speak like this in other Star Trek shows, obviously. And we want to have a vernacular or we want vernacular to be a part of canon, right? Yes. We want it to be consistent with Star Trek. Obviously, people don't speak like that in this in this world. That's why Stamets looked at her like surprised. Yeah. And the reason why it worked for her character was because she is a very out there character, very young. She might not be as naive. Exactly. It it it, it worked, man. The way they did it. And now she's, if she's they archer, yeah. <laughs> now if they go and have continued f-bombs throughout the show <laughs> then that'll i'll have a problem with it but i don't think that's what they're doing they, they did it for a reason and now they're gonna move on exactly and that's why that's why i say it's it's all about delivery people storytelling and story writing writing in general is a lost art it's starting to become a lost art because people think that they have to live by stereotypes and that's a shame because yeah. it's like you have to take these risks with your dialogue to help these characters grow. Absolutely. I can't disagree, Dave. You know what, though? The, they're playing us off right now. Just, oh, yeah. I, we're right now, we're at like our Oscar speech, and they're trying to play us off. But we have <laughs> to end the show. We actually went past our time today. Can I take my golden triple? <laughs> yes. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening to today's discussion that does wrap our breakdown. If you like our show and you want to share it with others, please do so. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Just search just search Star Trek from the holodeck. Thank you, David. Thank you. You're not going to say your go-to? Live long and prosper. <laughs> Jesus. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.